Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to this edition of Surgical Readings. I'm Dr. Rick Green, and today we're going to be talking with Dr. Marie Crandall. She's Professor of Surgery and Division Chief of Acute Care Surgery at the University of Florida. She also is the Program Director of the General Surgical Residency Program, and she is also the Associate Editor of Selected Readings in General Surgery. Dr. Crandall, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here and talk about vascular topics. Well, I'm, I'm just delighted that you've helped Dr. Lou Flint put this together. It has such valuable information. And you know, one of the things we always are concerned about, whether the patient has had an orthopedic procedure or a general surgical procedure, is how do we prophylax against venothrombosis? And I know that you've looked at this problem in selected readings. I wonder if you could talk about the use of intermittent pneumatic compression with or without anticoagulation? Is there a role for one or the other or both? What are your thoughts, Marie? That's a great question. And I actually think that this has been studied very well recently. In fact, one of the articles that we suggested for selected readings was the Cochrane Database Systematic Review from just this January that looked at combined intermittent pneumatic leg compression devices and pharmacological prophylaxis for prevention of VTE. And they were able to, I mean, this is an area that has been very well studied. They looked at 34 studies involving nearly 15,000 participants. So really one of the topics in acute care surgery that has been well studied and about which you really do have science, not just art. And what they found was that the incidence of DVT was significantly reduced in patients who had both pharmacologic prophylaxis as well as intermittent pneumatic compression devices. In fact, the difference was 9.3% versus 5.5%. And that was very, there was very statistically significant, but it's also really clinically significant. So it does seem that the addition of intermittent pneumatic compression devices does help in terms of prevention of DVTs. And there did not seem to be a difference in orthopedic patients versus non-orthopedic patients. And there was really no difference in bleeding either when anticoagulation and pneumatic compression devices were used separately or together. So I think that's a, that's a valuable point because any surgeon worries about the, the risk of bleeding when they when he or she chooses their VTE prophylaxis. So you, you feel that there's no risk based on good concrete analysis. Yeah, I really do think that this is, as I said, this is one of the best studied areas. The, the question about bleeding, the, the Cochrane database reviewers did admit that the data was very low quality because of heterogeneity in the study types, but it does seem clear that VTE prophylaxis, both DVTs and PEs, is improved with the addition of pneumatic compression devices. Let's uh, switch gears a little and talk about screening 
of DVT, especially in our trauma patients. What are your thoughts about routine screening? Should we screen, not screen? Is there any value in, in daily or every other day screening of these patients? Certainly there is a wide, and this has been studied in surveys, there is a wide variety of practice patterns at different hospitals and different centers. I think a, a really good guide to how we should practice was a, a recent very large randomized controlled trial that was performed at a single level one trauma center, but actually looked at over 3,000 trauma service admissions and demonstrated that over a two-year period of trauma patients that were admitted that routine screening was associated with decreased risk of VTE. So it appears that one of the things that we have always thought that most pulmonary emboli start out as DVTs, that if you screen these patients and treat them early and presumptively, that you might be able to prevent the morbidity of a pulmonary embolism. And indeed, that is what they found. So their results were that in their demographics, there was no difference in VTE risk factors between the groups. This was a randomized controlled trial, but there were significantly fewer in-hospital PEs in the ultrasound group, the screening ultrasound group versus the usual standard of care. And in fact, it was significant in terms of 12.5% versus 0.8% or 0.1% versus 0.9% looking at PEs the latter being, of course, less frequent, or DVTs, the former being more frequent. And above-knee DVTs, the difference was about 2% versus less than 1%. However, there was no difference in 90-day PE or DVT or overall mortality. However, screening clearly demonstrated efficacy in identifying patients with DVTs and, um, and then decreasing the rate of PEs because of aggressive treatment of those patients who were identified. Well, like any screening test, it really depends on who does the screening. Is this something that should be done by the resident taking care of a patient or somebody from the vascular lab or the attending? Who should do the screening? For this protocol, these were done in a standard vascular lab, not bedside ultrasound screening by the caregivers. But I think that that's a really interesting question. We're certainly evolving in point of care ultrasound for many of our patients. And it may be that that, where, that would be where we evolve. Um, we do know that for ultrasound technology, it is very user dependent, as you said. So for example, you know, for, for the eFAST, radiologists can detect about 50 cc's of fluid and it we need to we need to have about 200 to 500 cc's of fluid to be able to see something on a fast exam but i think that as we improve as technicians that it may be that a clinically relevant dvts can be detected on point of care ultrasound by our providers okay excellent points let's turn our attention to the ivc filter uh, this has been an area of uh, uh, intense uh, discussion over the years. I wonder if you could help us with that. Uh, do, do we really prevent PE? Do we prevent death from pulmonary emboli by putting filters in? Yeah, that is a, I would say that's a great question. As you know, there have been multiple studies looking at this and particularly for patients at high risk of bleeding with um, with VTE, chemical VTE prophylaxis, the vena cava filter was posited as a, as a potential way to decrease the likelihood of pulmonary embolism and, and, and mortality, morbidity from PE. And so it has been studied multiple times. A recent study that was actually a randomized 
controlled trial, multi-centered, published in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago, looked at vena cava filters in just the highest risk patients, severely injured patients. And the ones that had, and they were randomized because they were identified as having a, some sort of contraindication to anticoagulants, in particular head injuries or spinal cord injuries or, or that kind of thing, but in particular head injuries. And what they found was that early placement of a vena cava filter did not result in a significantly lower incidence of symptomatic PE or death. Um, which is disappointing, right? It was 13.9% in the vena cava filter group and 14.4% in the control group. And this, the, the difference of this study is that it wasn't, it, is that it was a prospective multi-center study of exactly the patients in whom you would consider a prophylactic filter, the high-risk patients. And the high-risk patients with a contraindication to chemical VT prophylaxis. And that this was really kind of the answer. And I think the question is then, well, gosh, what do we do now? And why didn't it work? But it didn't work. And it was a large enough study and the methodology was strong enough that I feel like we need to be looking for something else. Right. And you mentioned the head injury patient, because again, we see so many of these patients in our trauma units. So what should be our approach to VTE prophylaxis in this particular patient population? What's the timing of prophylaxis? What are your recommendations? That's also a great question. And as you know, there's been a variety of practices from center to center and from clinician to clinician. And a really strong study that was published just this year in March in JAMA Surgery looked at the risk of VTE and the risk of progression of traumatic brain injury bleeds with chemical VTE prophylaxis and timing of the same. This was a retrospective study, but it was multi-centered. The groups were from Hopkins, Toronto, Pennsylvania, and a very large study that looked at the timing versus the need for urgent neurosurgical in intervention and VTEs. And what they found was that if you started VTE prophylaxis earlier than, let's say, 24 hours, that your risk of bleeding went up. And over about 72 hours, your risk of VTE went up. So their summary of these data, and it looked at nearly 5,000 patients that were very similar to all types of trauma patients seen at most trauma centers 50 years old, the average you know, median age of 50 years old, all TBIs, severe, many of whom had undergone some sort of intervention. With injury adjustment, what they found was that around 72 hours was about the time where you see the inflection point of increased VTE risk. So probably 72 hours is around the time where you could safely initiate VTE prophylaxis. Before that, there was an increased risk of requiring a neurosurgical intervention for progression of a bleed. After that is where you started to see the increased VTE prophylaxis. So there's a sort of magic moment that is spread over probably somewhere in the 72-hour range that is most likely the safest for the patient. All right. Well, this is spectacular. This is uh, very valuable information. Let me ask you about low molecular weight heparin, because this has always been something, whether we should use these products or whether there's any benefit just to aspirin alone. And we, we've seen a lot of data from the orthopedic populations, the orthopedic data, especially on joint replacement patients. What are your thoughts? What does the literature tell us about this? This is another area that has been studied fairly extensively. Um, the com and, and part of the reason is because compliance is so poor with people having to give themselves 
injections, right? Like the one of the biggest predictors of poor compliance is being given low molecular weight heparin or some sort of heparinoid that you have to inject. Something like aspirin would be ideal if it worked well, because then compliance with having to do something to yourself that is both painful and aesthetically displeasing as many people find injecting themselves, that that wouldn't be part of a reason for non-compliance. And so a recent study in JAMA Internal Medicine that was published a couple of years ago looked at the clinical effectiveness and safety of aspirin for VTE prophylaxis after total joint replacements. And while that wasn't directly a trauma study, certainly it has applicability for the enormous amount of orthopedic trauma patients that we see. And this was a systematic review and meta-analysis following the standard PRISMA guidelines, et cetera. And what they found was about 13 randomized controlled trials that included over 6,000 patients with a mean age of 63 years, which is a very common for joint replacements. And their results were that the use of aspirin was equivalent to other anticoagulants used for VTE prophylaxis after total hip and total knee replacements. Their recommendation was for uh, subsequent prospective clinical studies of non-inferiority of aspirin compared with alternatives in cost effectiveness and compliance. And I think that those are really important points because if their outcomes are essentially equivalent on a population basis, certainly the cost, the ease of administration and compliance would very likely favor aspirin. So Marie, can we generalize from the orthopedic patient to the general surgery patient regarding this? I think that, you know, it's always dangerous to do that, right? Because of the hypercoagulability of pro-inflammatory states in acute care surgery. But I also think that it is useful to have that as back knowledge when you're planning prospective studies in your own patients. I think that's a valuable point because certainly in our cancer patients who are hypercoagulable, there may be different things going on. Now, we've been talking about veins, so I can't get away without asking you a, a trauma point because it comes up sometimes we see a patient with an IBC injury or an iliac vein injury. And the question always comes up about using stents in these patients with these types of injuries. What, what does the literature tell us? What do you tell us about the stents in venous injury? So my personal experience results in an N of zero for that type of repair, but I'm always fascinated when I hear that people have used a stent because it doesn't seem like it would make sense, especially, right? Because you have all these lumbar veins, you have hepatic veins in the IBC that are dumping fluid into the IBC. So anything that covers any of those vessels that are dumping into the IBC, you think would make the stent graft fall away from the wall. And I guess that that's true. But in a recent study published in Journal of Vascular Surgery and Venous Lymphatic Disorders, they did a systematic review of case reports and any case series of the use of these stent grafts for large vein injuries, IVC or iliac injuries. And the iliacs make a little more sense just because they tend to be longer. But still, the IVC was really interesting. And they found 28 studies, a total of 35 patients had been treated with various covered stent grafts. And in all patients, the treatment was technically successful. The 30-day mortality rate for the entire Entire series was only 2.9%. I did not go back and look at all of the studies that were included as references. So it makes you wonder, kind of like a truck shunt, if you actually do an atrial cable shunt and the patient survives, did the patient need it at all? Because, you know, they were so stable that they tolerated you cutting into their atrium and, and their IBC. And I I don't know the answer to that, but I do think that it is interesting. And at more and more trauma meetings, there are interesting cases of using stent grafts 
as opposed to direct repair of the IVC or watching somebody bleed out on the table. So I feel like it's an area where it has possibilities and it maybe needs to be the right location and in stable patients, maybe you didn't need to do it in the first place, but it, it bears watching and it may be the right thing for the occasional patient. So maybe we should wait for an N greater than 35. Maybe we should. And yet it has the possibility of being a far less morbid procedure with technical success rates that are high, very similar to you know, endovascular repair of a traumatic rupture of the aorta that is clearly a superior to surgical repair in terms of outcomes. We've been talking with Dr. Marie Crandall, professor of surgery, She's chief of the Division of Acute Care Surgery at the University of Florida. Marie is also program director of the General Surgical Residency Program, and she is one of the associate editors of Selected Readings in General Surgery. Marie, it's been such a pleasure to have you today on Surgical Readings. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag SurgicalReadings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.